to another edition of the Unicorns Podcast. This is a podcast series featuring business leaders, motivators, innovators, and general go-getters. Today's edition of the Unicorns Podcast focuses on cybersecurity. My guest is one of the veterans of the industry, Eric Pinkerton. Eric is a senior security advisor at one of Australia's leading cybersecurity consultancy firms, Phronesis Security. Eric, or Pinky as he's known, has over three decades of experience in IT, networking, security architecture, and network security and operations. He specialized in running tailored tabletop exercises to stress test and uplift executive crisis management teams and their supporting systems and processes. He's also an active speaker on the cybersecurity circuit, having presented on various topics at some high profile events, including CyberCon and many OzCert conferences. G'day, Eric. Welcome to the program. G'day. Thanks for having me. Maybe we could start if I asked you how you first got into the cybersecurity industry. Yeah. So, like most of the people in the industry, I came on a quite a different part to everyone else. Um, I was a network engineer when I emigrated over to Australia, and I found myself working in a sort of doing shift work for an internet service provider in their NOC, and then got a always had a healthy interest in cybersecurity as a network engineer. So I'd, I'd been a network engineer where we'd had incidents that I had to then go and investigate and figure out what had happened and how it had happened and how to stop it. But moving into the industry or, uh, when I was in the UK was pretty tricky. When I found myself working for this ISP, I ended up working with the security guy there who taught me an awful lot and gave me my first sort of foothold in the in the industry as it were and i've not really looked back so what is it that interests you about the work that you do and the industry more broadly um so i've always been drawn to adversarial thinking so i'm one of those people who's always you know walking around a shop looking at the cameras thinking you know <laughs> how would i how would i steal <laughs> things from this shop not that i ever do but it's just that that mindset um coupled with that sort of hacker mentality which is every time i see something i want to know how it works um you know as a kid i was always in trouble for taking toys apart my father was wired exactly the same way he was very fond of taking things apart and would often seek my help in putting things back together mm -hmm. uh, and nothing teaches you to to kind of build and tweak things like having to reassemble something that you've not seen disassembled <laughs> so, what do i do so, now yeah so, so all those things that i've realized in later life that i'm sort of a bit neurodiverse a little bit adhd uh, a little bit dyslexia and and then had this epiphany that, that so many other people in this industry have those same sort of 
new sort of various neurodiverse traits <laughs> and we've all kind of it's it brought us to this industry if you like there's, there's sort mm. of we've found our tribe with all the other people that are wired a little bit differently it sounds like you could be a wizard with an ikea flat pack given oh, a yeah, couple love, of instructions love, <laughs> putting, love assembling things some allen keys we'll, we'll sometimes spice it up by not even looking at the instructions oh. just, just to see what i end up with dear idea I, I look at my newly constructed bookcase and then look back at the instructions to find that i bought a desk I have to go back to the start. <laughs> I, I note that you recently had an article published which focused on the things you wished you knew about cyber way back when. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so I ha- was asked to talk to a cohort of um, what are called AWSN explorers. So they're women who are interested in moving into the cybersecurity industry from various walks of life Mm -hmm. and the australian women's security networks awesome awesome organization that sort of helps women uh women women helping other women in the industry so getting into the industry and progressing through the industry and by virtue of being asked to help facilitate one of their talks they asked if i'd like to sort of stand up and and do do a bit of a talk and what I came up with in in very short order was this sort of idea of these are the sort of uh, I started with ten things I think I ended up with eleven that I wish I'd known that I wish someone had taken to me once sort of to one side when I began and told me you know here are the things that you need to know these are the myths these are the these are the things that that will waste time if and, unless you dispel these myths. What were some of the things on that list? So one of the things was the belief I held dearly when I came into the industry that the industry was all about sort of hacking and coding and sort of the penetration testing technical element. And there's so much mythos out there about that refers to that particular niche of this industry where people will assert that you absolutely must learn to code. If you can't code, you have no business being in this industry. And of course, the industry is a really broad church. It's a, there's massive different areas, some of which are completely untechnical uh, and some of which are, are not even suited to people that are wired in that way. So if you aren't someone who's naturally a coder or, or takes to that, you shouldn't be put off by all of the rhetoric out there about not learning to code. You just need to find your niche within the industry. Mm. And, and you know, to, ca- to caveat that carefully with, if you are interested in learning to code, by all means do so, it won't do you any harm. Yeah. But, you know, one of the reasons we're all in this industry is because, potentially, because people who didn't want to code were forced to learn to code, and that resulted in people writing poor code, which led to the, the vulnerabilities that, that we all find ourselves chasing and sort of trying to eradicate. I'll get to um, some of those high-profile incidents in a moment. Frenesis Security is a firm on the rise, hasn't been in business for that long. I'm keen to know more about what it is you do at Frenesis and what Frenesis is all about. Yeah, so so what Frenesis is about, so it's a small consulting sort of professional services organization molded very, very very much in the same mold as a few other organizations I've worked for. I've gravitated towards that smaller 
younger sort of agile startup part of the security industry having worked for lots of different organizations i've worked for very big organizations over my career i've worked for very small organizations and the stuff that i like is is having the agility to adapt to what the market wants very quickly you can be having a coffee with a with a client and they describe a problem to you which which you might not have heard before mm. and then coming up with you know here's how here's what it might look like if i was to help you with that particular problem and then a week later you can be sort of sleeves rolled up helping them with that that problem which isn't as easy in a bigger organization where they have very of course sort of templated yeah. these are these are our the, the products that we sell or these are the the templates we use um phrenesis is um, you know that that very much comes from Eliot's background in philosophy. So it's a Greek word. We're talking where, about Eliot Dilly's the yeah, CEO the, and the, co-founder. the brainchild behind Phrenesis. So I'd worked yes. with Eliot before, um, and he teamed up with Daniel Hood, who I've known for a, a very long time and worked. I think I've worked in three or four different companies with Dan, uh, and came up with this this idea and this concept. And Phrenesis, as it as I understand it, really gelled with me because it's about the pragmatic approach. It's very easy for security consultants to come in and make motherhood statements around all oh, you just need to, you know, secure all the things. You just need to patch all the the vulnerabilities. It's dead easy. You just need to tell everyone, you know, to do the not to click on links, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the, the cybersecurity abounds with these platitudinous advice. If you've ever worked in operations and tried to patch all the vulnerabilities, you know it's far easier to say than it is to do. As soon as you patch vulnerabilities, it starts breaking things, which leads to other knock-on yes. effects, and, mm. and suddenly you're just chasing this this endless rainbow. So, that, so this idea of pragmatic advice really appeals to me. As far as you can, who are some of your, your clients or your customers or the, or the industries in, in which you're working? Yeah, so it's, it's a really broad spectrum. It goes from government departments who are mandated to do certain things because of their, you know, by virtue of being a government department. Mm-hmm. There are financial institutions um, who tend to tend to have more skin in the game and a little bit more budget to fight these things. We've dealt with charity organizations who have really have to have a very keen sense of you know getting the best bang for their buck they haven't got huge um, budgets to throw around so they really want to get the get get the best for for their you know what, what little budget they have um and and pretty much any anyone the, the types of organizations you know that there's a a kind of middle ground where you have very large organizations with big security teams who kind yes. of have security sewn up then you have really small organizations that aren't quite thinking about cybersecurity either because you usually the the point at which you start thinking about cyber cybersecurity in the worst case is when you have an incident and then you suddenly think realize it's you have too, to think about it's it too late <clears throat> potentially the other inroad is is when you get a, you know, maybe your first big client on the hook and they send you a spreadsheet that just says, oh, before we sign our contract, we just need you to answer these questions. 
and you get this whole spreadsheet full of complicated questions like do you do penetration testing or have you got a security framework or et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and they quickly realize that if they give truthful oh, answers dear. to all of these questions, mm. they'll never hear from the organization again. The contract's, yeah, over before it started. Yeah. So so they might reach out to us and say, hey, how can we answer this? How can we change some of these no to yeses right. or how can we – pitch this in a way that sound that's not going to scare them off. There have been a, a number of high profile cyber incidents over the past 12 months. Optus, Medibank, I think Woolies, Latitude, there's a big list and that's just in Australia. So a couple of questions for you. What were your general observations of those incidents on the on the hacks and maybe taking Another view, what have we learnt since? So, first observation, I, I guess, is that when it happened, there was an awful lot of press around the fact that this is, you know, something's changed. There was an awful lot of uh, rhetoric around the idea that, you know, perhaps this is our chickens coming home to roost after we supported the Ukraine or, you know, what, what's changed that suddenly we're being targeted by this attack, these attackers. But all that had really happened is because of the nature and the size of those attacks and the fact that they pretty much either captured everyone or someone that everyone knew, Suddenly, it became mainstream news, and people were talking about it at barbecues, and and people were asking for my opinion on it, which is which was great from a cybersecurity awareness perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but these things had always been happening, and these things have continued to happen. You know, I ma- I made a joke at the t- sort of a bit of a flippant joke at the time about October being Cybersecurity Awareness Month. And it was the best cybersecurity awareness month on record because literally everyone became aware of cybersecurity. But it, it and to this to this day, every news story you read in an Australian publication that talks about any form of hack, somewhere will include the words Optus and Medibank. There'll be some yes. reference to you know this this inflection point that was those breaches. The government, um, the new government, have taken cybersecurity you know, very much as a as a, a real point of difference with the previous government and have made endless claims that cybersecurity was in a complete mess when they came to power, that, that they're doing all, you know, and, and what we're seeing is them really taking an active role in changing that. So for me, it was, it was interesting because, or slightly bemusing because, you know, I've put together a slide with all of the other attacks that occurred in that year and Optus Medibank, um, you know, they, they were two amongst probably about 50 or 60 other attacks mm. that, that we knew mm. about from the, you know, the things that were made public, and there'll be others we don't really know about. Um, what have we learned? Um, what we learned, uh, for me, I think we certainly learned how not to do communications in the aftermath of an attack from one of those organizations yes what could yes. be described as a case study in sort of a uh, sort of unfortunate events and and they were kind of in a very tricky predicament though the, the cards were stacked very much against them mm. but they but but you know nobody has looked back and said of optus they handle that really well from a communications perspective medibank on the other hand did do really well from a 
communications. They were very clear. They were very transparent. There was lots of communications. There were a few things that that you know I would look at and say maybe maybe that could have done been done a little bit better. You know that there lots of language around. You know we have no evidence to you know show that any data has been stolen early on, which of course they had to walk back on when the attackers started to publish it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I. Um, you know, if I was advising an organization, I'd be very cautious of, of those types of statements. What we've seen is, is a lot of the canon thinking around how to respond in a breach has changed over the past year. You know, things that people were, were very confident of as being the best way. I think some of my clients are looking back and saying, is that really you know, is that really the right way to, to go? As a general rule, are Australian firms holding on to too much data for too long? Can you offer an opinion on that? So this is another sort of great piece of platitudinous advice, which is, you know, really off the back of the latitude breach, we saw that some of the data that, that went missing was 20 years old. And people obviously were upset to find a company that hadn't dealt with for 20 years was still holding on to their information. So it's, so along comes the easy platitudinous advice that, oh, you just need to purge any data you no longer need. But of course, that's quite a tricky thing to do. Um, if you're talking about, you know, if you can sort by files in a folder and say, delete anything you know older than a certain date, that's all very easy. But if you're thinking of trying to sieve out old comments in a database, unless that database was designed with that as an outcome for, you know, seven or eight years ago when it needs to have been put together so that you can affect this now, it's a very tricky thing to go sort of and unscramble that egg. So organizations right now are tearing their hair out, A, fighting the internal political battle, which is, you know, getting the go-ahead to go and delete data where you know, the, the old way of thinking was just hang on to the data. Disk space is cheap. We'll come up with a, you know, reason for it later on. Now, once they win that political fight, which was, yes, let's, you know, it's a risk to keep that data if we no longer need it, um, then they have to sort of get over the technical hurdle of how they do it without accidentally deleting the wrong thing. What, what, what's some practical advice that you could pass on to a business that's just had, say, a, an attack come in, a hack, ransomware, whatever you'd like to call it, like literally in the first couple of hours? What are some of the things that CEOs, um, CTOs should be doing or at least thinking about in, in those first moments? So the first moments of a breach are interesting because it isn't initially it isn't always clear what's going on so if you have a ransomware attack the way it kind of works is an attacker will gain a foothold very quietly within the network and it might be stolen credentials or they might have exploited a vulnerability in something they'll spend maybe a couple of weeks in that organization moving quietly moving laterally, trying to escalate their privileges to a point where they can really work out what the crown jewels of that organizations are, what's going to hurt the most, how, how high up the tree they can climb, and, and how they can do the maximum damage in the shortest sort of time frame. Then they will 
schedule a usually that 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 well that exfiltrate as much sensitive data as they can and then they will schedule the encryption of that information if if it's a sort of crypto ransomware attack uh, usually they'll do that late at night on a friday in the hope that the admins are going to be off for the weekend and no one's going to spot those encryption jobs happening and of course then you might get some calls on a sunday afternoon that some clients can't access something or some staff members try to access something so it starts off as a help desk call hey you know i can't get to such and such yeah my email's uh, down or i'm getting yeah, a so, bounce yeah, back or like what's up yeah and it might be a sunday night so nobody really looks at it until monday morning will someone will get in they'll start working working through the, the queue and they might see an incident. They might dispatch a sort of level two tech to go and investigate, go log onto that server and find out why it's down. And then the, the you know that first engineer who goes might find a ransom note on the desktop of that server or might find that the files are encrypted. Now, what's critical for an organization is that that gets escalated to very senior people very quickly because because now you'll typically have usually around seven days to make a payment before that data is released onto the dark web. So what sometimes happen is the IT guys sort of wheel spin a little bit, they waste time, they might try and recover it from backup, they might escalate it to a senior IT person who, who is reticent to sort of sort of call in the big guns and, and so on and so forth. But what needs to happen is there's a whole slew of things that need to happen at that point. You need to have a conversation with your insurance. You might want to reach out to the um, the ACSC to see if they can render any assistance. You want to pull in as many uh, friends as you can. So if you have an incident response organization on retainer, if you have a PR company on retainer, you want to get all the senior people in a room so that you can sort of start to discuss what your options are, what the various decisions you need to make are, what the pros and cons for each one of those decisions are, what you know, what you don't know, um, and what assumptions you've got to try to bridge the gap between the stuff you know and the stuff you don't know. And, and, and that's pretty much what, what needs to happen. The sooner you start on that journey, the better, because you've got that kind of limited time frame within which to make a response. I want to switch gears slightly here and head in a new direction. And I'm mindful, Pinky, of opening up a massive can of worms with, with this question. Actually, it's not a question. Artificial intelligence, discuss. <laughs> this is this is my both my pet passion and my biggest nightmare at the moment because the more i read into it the more fascinating and the more stark and and dark it kind of gets i'm you know i'm a big fan of ai tools i've been using them for quite some time the the, the things that have changed in such rapid such a rapid time frame over the past six months is is startling and, and exciting and interesting but there is this you know that adversarial thinking part of me you know what could possibly go wrong here the cyber security cynic the you know what's the worst case scenario sort of sees the corollary with you know what social media has done you know from the initial you know the first invite to facebook and you know that the you know the way that that what is this into yeah that, the way that that was great and exciting and it morphed into all the other social networks and and now the sort of surveys are starting to return results 
like the fact that I think 33% of US teenage girls have seriously contemplated suicide mm. and social media and, and sort of body positivity and is in the frame for those kind of statistics. So nobody set out to build a social network that would create that outcome, but the law of intended consequences the use of algorithms to chase clicks to get engagement sometimes takes us down a dark path. You know, we see people writing, you know, rage farming, for instance, on social media where people will make controversial statements purely to get clicks and engage people because because all of the hate uh, that, that that creates. Now, AI, it could be similar in the way that, you know, it, it decides what what you know what to do and how to react and and i'm also conscious of the the fact that robots and ai are kind of betrothed and have been for quite some time we've already got military contractors desperate to put ai in you know weaponized vehicles and robot dogs and and you just you worry about where it where it all leads it's quite kind of fascinating. Well, I think there. Are, I think that's when Skynet becomes self-aware, isn't it? Well, that's. I, I. I don't think. See, this is the thing: is people talk about, you know, the Terminator, and uh, you know, are, are our Roombas going to be overtaken by ChatGPT and try to try to kill us? I don't think it even needs to go to that point. I think it just needs to. You know, the worst case is that the world continues on this trajectory towards more polarization of thought and more, you know, hate, and we will do the rest ourselves. That's 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 my biggest fear on this. However, there is also a much less stark outcome, which is that we use AI and robots to do all the things we don't want to do, and we just drink cocktails on a beach. <laughs> well, that sounds that's, good. That's, but everyone, I mean, everyone says the robots are taking my job. That's, yeah, I that, don't. That's the fallback fall into that trap quickly any more than I, you know, that the, the invention of power tools put builders out of work, you know, what, what it makes what their the job easier. Power better. Tools, what, yes. Yeah. I mean, there are probably a few crappy builders who've been put out of work, but they can retrain as, as ambulance technicians and stitch people's fingers back on. Right. So mm. the loss of one job creates other jobs. Maybe we'll all end up fixing robots or creating AI prompts. I think uh, uh, the jobs most at risk are the jobs that people don't want to do. The danger mm. is that the people who don't can't do the jobs no one wants to do are now, you know, worse off, and that leads to to bad things. You know, mm. austere times lead to, you know, quite poor outcomes. Do you think when Chat GPT went live, that was the big sort of breakthrough moment for AI? reaching that consumer level of understanding? Yeah, I think it's certainly the first uh, sort of interface with the general public. Mm. Now, bearing in mind, they'd been working on this for an awful long time. Google had been working on something uh, for an awful long time before that. We saw all the fallout from, was it Lambda, where the guy at Google uh, got fired for insisting that he, it had become sentient and he tried to engage a lawyer for it and to stop it being turned off. And so, so all of this stuff was happening, but it was chat GPT that really brought it to the, the, that democratized it. But more fascinating is the fact that this chat GPT is a global social experiment. So we're not just being introduced so that we can play with this tool. We are providing training data for this tool. And that's the other interesting thing is that 
what AI really needs is is training data. It's, you remember the film Short Circuit where Johnny Five runs through the bookshop shouting, data, input, input, I want more input. Yeah. That's kind yeah. of AI right now. And what we know from working with computers for years and years and years is if you put garbage into a computer, you get garbage out the other side. Mm. And if you're starting to use humans and the internet as your training data, that can lead to bad places. We, there was a great story where IBM Watson, which was a really early AI tool. Is that still around? It's, it's still around. It's still built into certain things, especially in, a, in IBM land. But, but mm. the problem that Watson had early on, that it was unable to really understand slang. So what they quickly Gosh. did or what an engineer quickly did was he thought, where can I, where can I get a massive database of slang terms? So he pointed it to Urban Dictionary, and within a couple of minutes, uh, Watson had <laughs> learned all the words in w Urban Dictionary and ended up calling a, uh, a researcher a bastard. Yeah. Um, uh -oh. Yeah. So they quickly had to roll that back. So if you think about uh, ChatGPT having access to Twitter, which is a, just a sewer of, of yes. hate and, and misinformation. Wow. And, and how does how does ChatGPT know the difference between you know, Wikipedia, right? There's, there's a difference between Wikipedia and the Encyclopedia Britannica. It's kind of got the same aims. One is much bigger. One has got far more disinformation or subjective information or, you know, trying for the most part, it's good and it's healthy and it's, and it's correct. But there are a few malicious edits in there, uh, having been responsible for some of them in the past. I know, I know this all too well. So uh, this is the tricky part, that, that do we have enough good, clean, quality data to train these AIs in a way that will make them, you know, respectable adults? That's the chat GPT is a baby. And if we want that baby to grow up into a really nice adult, we can't be exposing it to the comments on YouTube. Final question for you, Eric. Is it possible, in your view, to establish a framework for metrics in cyber? It's interesting you ask. So I have a talk uh, to write. Uh, well, actually, it's a workshop to run at a conference in Queensland later on in the year. And my idea was to come up with a framework for metrics because the question of what metrics we should use in cybersecurity comes up over and over again. Mm -hmm. The answer is somewhere. Is there between, an answer? Yeah, the, the, it's look. The, the question, the answer to every question in cybersecurity is it depends. And what it depends on is kind of knowing what it depends on as quickly as you can is is the trick. And what metrics depend on is firstly what information do you have to hand. So you can't measure everything and not everything that you can measure easily is useful and lots of the things that you really would like to measure you can't measure so you, you're left with this kind of table full of certain things that you can measure and then it's how do you measure it how do you quantify it what does good look like and as a network engineer i spent an awful lot of time hoovering data from devices, sort of meta information on how things were running, how hot they were, how much capacity they were using, how much 
disk space they had left, how much memory they were using. And I graphed it over time. There were lots of tools in the networking world that allowed you to draw graphs. And once you start graphing a number, you can start to set high watermarks or low watermarks, or you can start to pick out spikes or troughs. And that becomes fascinating. And then it becomes less about what metrics should I capture and more about what's happening in this in this ecosystem. So straight away, if you have a problem, you can pull up your graphs and see there's a spike. What's that? You know, And you pull the thread and find out what the heck has happened that's caused that spike. Well, that spike is the temperature in that particular data center. The temperature suddenly went up at 4 p.m. yesterday afternoon. That means probably the aircon has failed. So, so what you can, and then you can start to create automated jobs off the back of that. So if the temperature ever rises above this particular point, I need you to send an email to this person to tell them they need to go and look at the aircon, right? So every time you troubleshoot. Now that doesn't, that that same rule of thumb applies to business, it applies to cybersecurity. If you can collect metrics as, you know, even, okay, how many people do we have on the staff and how many of them have been through their mandatory cyber awareness training? And then you can map that to how many people are clicking on links in in phishing campaigns. And if you find out, for instance, that the same people who've had cybersecurity training or awareness are clicking on links in emails in your phishing campaigns, then maybe something's not working quite well with your – you might need to revisit your training. Or you might need to have a word with the chap who's writing your phishing campaign emails and tell him not to be so diabolical. So all of all of these things start to give you actionable intelligence rather than just what we tend to see in, in this industry, which is a number on a on a slide deck, which means nothing. You know, going back to the Medibank hack, they were fond of reporting that their firewalls block 18 billion attacks a day. That's completely meaningless as a number. But mm. if you started to see how that particular number tracked over time, then you start to have the context which allows you to then make inferences and make decisions on the back of that. Eric Pinky Pinkerton, New South Wales Director for Phronesis Security and all-round cyber guru. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for having me.